tuned into the All My Friends podcast. Pleased to meet you. I hope you're well. I'm the host Liam Oliver and my guest today is the This Is Not Happening podcast co-host and one half of Son of Bangers, Guy Hornsby. There was a time when the album was king. HMV was flying high and everyone bought CDs. As a medium for presenting music, the album offered something very unique. Not exactly a mix and definitely not an EP. A collection of tracks meticulously arranged by an artist or band that told a specific story. The rise of the internet has changed buying habits and how people consume music. Streaming and digital downloads are pulling buyers towards subscriptions and singles. No one's got time to listen to an album anymore, right? Has the album has its day? Is it profitable? Or is it even necessary for an artist to spend a year in the studio banging one out? That's what me and Guy will be chatting about in this show. And I can see a few tilts of the heads and a few nods and a few shakes there when I was giving that introduction. So, Guy, we're going to get into all that today. Uh, welcome. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, actually. Nice. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. yeah if you're listening, <laughs> it's, the way, it's the way we like to spend it with our partners, right? Like uh, yeah. recording podcasts with people that we're not, uh, we're not with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're listening uh, in summer or in whenever you're listening, this is actually getting recorded on Valentine's Day. But our love of music supersedes all <laughs> there we go um yeah now i normally start these podcasts by asking my guests to introduce themselves and give us their story and musical journey but i feel for this show it might be better if we start with you telling us about the this is not happening podcast i think a quick rundown of what you cover on the show will give the listeners a good understanding of why i've asked you on my show today to discuss albums and the future of albums so shoot tell us all about it yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a planned thing. I mean, I'm absolutely, I'm really glad we did it. We, we've been putting the podcast um, out since uh, the middle of last year, but it actually came off the the back of a blog that um, myself and four friends had written for um, over a decade now uh, called This Is Not Happening, uh, a riff on the LCD sound system name. Um, that They're probably one of our big shared loves. We always talk about like a bit of a Venn diagram between the four of us and they they sit in the middle without a doubt, then Bowie and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and I think we, it was a guy called uh, Nolan Kane, who's a Canadian DJ and promoter I met at Leeds legendary night Speed Queen in the mid noughties. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of his friends, his ex-housemate Joe, Joe Story and their best friend David Allison. Um, and we'd kind of been talking about it online for a bit because um, we'd been on some message boards and stuff. They they closed down um, and we just wanted somewhere to talk about music that we loved and kind of write about it. We've all got a bit of a music kind of, angle anyway um you know I, i've been writing about music for the best part of 20 years as well but we all came from slightly different places and backgrounds and we just wanted to kind of have our own little thing it was never started as anything you know none of this or the podcast was like let's make a big name for ourselves let's make money let's do anything it was nothing other than just we all love music and we wanted somewhere where we could talk about it so we kind of it was a bit of a scattergun approach at the start but we landed on not always nominating an album album of the month because we I guess we're we're all of an age I think youngest of us is early 40s oldest is early 50s and we definitely come from an age where the album we were brought up on albums Mm -hmm. um and albums are a really big part of all the music we love not to say that we don't 
you know, not an IDJ. Like I buy tons and tons of tracks, but the album is always the kind of centerpiece of music for us. So we did it for, for ages. I think, you know, we cover everything, you know, all, you know, all genres, you name it. We've done hip hop albums, indie, pop, dance music, cla- we've done, revisited classic albums. You know, we're sort of, I think we've done well over a hundred albums of the month now. Mm-hmm. And I think it came to lockdown. Um, and one of us kind of half jokingly said, well, why don't we do a podcast to think slightly out of desperation because this was March, April during lockdown one. And I think we were all like going slightly out of our minds, stuck in our, in our four walls as, ev- as everyone's had, but actually it was the best decision we made. I'd kind of toyed with one for a while. I talked to a friend about doing one about sport that never really got off the ground, but music kind of felt the most obvious. And all we really did was we just picked that album of the month in July last year, which was run the jewels RTJ four said, let's, let's everyone get a mic. Let's just give it a go and see what happens. Um, and it sort of worked out really well. It, it kind of gelled really well. I, I, we'd never, weirdly, we'd never all spoken to each other before that. I know Nolan really well. I'd met David once or twice. I'd never met Joey. So the first time I ever saw Joey's face face to face was the first podcast we did, which is kind of a really weird thing. But that was because they all lived together up here. And I, I moved up to Manchester from London after 20 years. So I wasn't really in the area. So we're kind of eight episodes in. We've done everyone from like Run the Jewels to Caribou, Paul McCartney, Salt, Bicep is the latest one. So we kind of always wanted to pick an album that's kind of got a bit of press and a bit of um, interest and just talk about it. And um, that's really how it came about. And I'm, I'm really glad to have it in our lives, to be honest. Amazing. Um, I don't want to go too much into like the technical side of it, but obviously yeah. being a podcaster myself, I'd love to know hey. uh, a quick rundown of maybe some of the technical challenges you've had to face with like four podcasters, not even in the same room, all having to um, get 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 their their opinion in. It must be a bit of a bit of a nightmare. How do you manage to navigate that? I mean, I think it's it, we definitely landed on a. I think when you we all chat to each other a, a bit, you kind of end up landing in a in a bit more of a system. It was a bit of a free for all at the start. Obviously, you need four decent mics. You want four people with, um, you know, not a big lot of loudspeaker. You want something on a on a headphone so that you're not getting that feedback. You know, when you're on like work calls and mm-hmm. all you get is someone's call echoing in. So we just need to make sure. You know, I've produced music. I've I've kind of done radio shows before. So I was a bit very much like it's got to sound good. So we insisted that everyone had microphones. And I think, you know, thank God for Zoom. Actually, it's, you know, an, an, unless you're starting to get really serious, the audio quality you can put on it is is really decent. And I think uh, while obviously we're doing video here, we don't do video for, for this is not happening. But what we do, what does work quite well is when you've got more than one voice and more than one person on it is we're all, we can all see each other. So there's a lot of hand signals going on. There's a lot of pointing to somebody who hasn't spoken for a while. And it actually kind of works quite nicely. And I think we've, because we've now done eight episodes, we've also got used to each other's, you know, we know what music the other one will, you know, we we're sort of almost preempting, oh, you know, David, you won't like that because it's noise, you know, it's shoegaze. And I know that Nolan won't like my vocal pop sort of loves. Mm-hmm. So we kind of know when people are going to butt in, but yeah. And I think the other thing is the edit. Um, yeah. We, we, we get the podcast down to about 60, 70 minutes and the record is anywhere north of two hours sometimes. So I edit it with Nolan and that's, um, yeah, you need to, you need to have some patience, but you actually get a good rhythm. You know, you're just nicking out all the highs, breaths, like, and all that sort of stuff, as I'm sure you, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
you kind of get into a bit of a groove with it. And I think it, 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 it always, you know, I think when, when a couple of friends have said, oh, it sounds really good. I'm like, great, because yeah. that's what we want. It's, I mean, you should, have, you should have heard what we left out. It's an audio first medium as well, isn't it? So the totally. sort of like the, uh, the entry level standard. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You say that but, I've listened to a few podcasts before where I've been like, I don't know how this has managed to get past uh, anyone in, in their marketing team. If it's like a company. Podcast. Yeah, I have a real, there's, there's part of me, there's the music kind of part of me that um, really like, like I really want everything to sound as good as it can. Um, obviously you've got to be interesting because that's only half the battle but I think yeah I know what you mean sometimes you listen and they're going oh we, we recorded it over a bit of a dodgy phone line and you're just thinking yeah. oh come on yeah yeah no dodgy phone lines here no no your phone's not even using the wi-fi I won't <laughs> no as long as yeah as long as no one cuts the wi-fi out we should be all right <laughs> um yeah one other quick point there that you brought up you never met each so you've never met your co-hosts Prior in one place. Time. It's so weird. So I know I'd met Nolan. I got I met Nolan. I, I've lost count of many times I've, I've met him. I used to see him DJ at Speed Queen. We went to Ibiza together. Um, so I've known him really well for like the last 15, 20 years. Um, David, um, David, I met, I've met, I think once, but we had a very drunken night out at a friend's, a friend's like venue, uh, Sheaf Street in Leeds, where I DJed with a friend of mine, Mel, and then Nolan, dragged David down and for one beer and we got in at like three in the morning or something like classic, classic dads on tour. Um, but, but Joe, it's, I think it's just geographically because I was in London. Um, those guys have known each other all the time and they, they were going to gigs and together and I turned down going to see a bunch of bands with them. And then of course, lockdown hit and we started the podcast and, it, and we realized that we'd never actually been in the same room. So there's all sorts of, we've got loads of gigs booked for after, um, for after whenever lockdown finishes and, and when we're at the other side of this, where we're all actually going to be in the same room. So I think it's going to be um, some emotional scenes. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I just want because the reason I said that is because I want to like touch almost on like the power of podcasting. Like this is oh, the yeah. first time we've ever spoken face to face, but it's just a really no. great, nice way to like meet new people and have like great conversations. And one oh, totally. point um, you mentioned going to Ibiza because of lockdown, I've had to cancel my plans for Ibiza this year, which is a bit sad. We booked it last year. We're like, we'll 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 book it now. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, or it's yeah. gonna, we can always push it back. If uh, if it's any consolation, I was uh, this summer was the second year that my week working at Glastonbury for the Glade got pulled. So I'm with you on the whole kind of musical holiday getting trashed yeah. by by well, lockdown. Fingers crossed. I don't want this yeah. to turn into a Corona podcast either. We're not nah, doing, I think not doing... I think you've done it to death, haven't we? Like yeah. <laughs> everyone has. It's 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 probably one of the last things I'm I'm up for talking about right now. So uh, yeah, d definitely definitely happy to avoid that subject. Um, before we go any further, I want to ask you a bit about what you do outside of the This Is Not Happening podcast. You know, what other musical projects have you been part of? Um, you know, you're one half of Son of Bangers, um, yeah. on radio. Um, and you've done some work at Glastonbury, like you just said. Um, could you fill us in on all your all your other highlights? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said, I've kind of I, I grew up on albums. I have a real memory of listening to music in my dad's headphones. These ones with the big seventies ones with the knobs on the side when I was mm -hmm. a kid, which I broke. Sorry, Dad. Um, listening to like their kind of a lot lot of Beatles, Motown stuff, um, um, and then I think. And I think I was a massive pop music fan. Um, I, I absolutely can't claim that anything I liked probably before my 
university years was cool or edgy. Yeah, I, I liked, I had the odd dance music record and stuff, but only because it was in the charts at the time. But then I went to uni in Sheffield in 93 and I first went to a proper club because I was, I was at boarding school as a kid. So I only, I didn't really hang out outside um, work, uh, sorry, outside school until I was probably 17. Mm-hmm. And then it was obviously just discovering the pub. So I, w- I went to Sheffield and we had some amazing venues about then, the Lead Mill Music Factory, the Arches, you know, I saw all sorts of DJs for the first time, saw Knuckles up there, Farley Jackmaster, Funk, Alistair Whitehead, Loved Up Twins, Sasha, Craig Campbell. I saw all of those guys in the first six months I went clubbing mm-hmm. in, in 93. So it was a bit of an epiphany really. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I moved back to London afterwards and I kind of f- fell out of that kind of scene for a bit. And it was only when I bumped, I randomly met someone through a friend at work where they were DJs, that they, they then said, you know, have a go on my decks. This is around 98. And since then, I you know I started, you know my first gigs was the net was the next year some like sort of funky house strokes at a trance gigs because I'm of that era. I'm not snobbish about it. I'm sure a lot of other people my age are, but it's interesting seeing how many DJs or people who love music kind of try to write that bit out of their history. Yeah, yeah. But you know I've still got my box of those those records at home, and yeah, I had a really I had a really uh, like amazing first ten years of kind of being DJing, and you know I never got I never. You know, I was never serious about it being a day job, but you know, I played Ministry and Heaven and Turmills and Rhythm Factory, and you know, we put on some nights. Uh, I ran one called Dropout with some friends. We did the Horse and Groom and Best Style, Bethnal Green. We had guys like Chris Fink from Atomic Jam, Bear Weasel, Loosh, Pol- and Polaroid guys. So we, it was kind of a small, you know, 150, 200 capacity party. But we just wanted to do. I think I'd. I'd worked on some really big promotions, but I was in the second or third room and I kind of got fed up of like, you know, playing, playing to playing at 6am to people who were just kind of like coming to room for a sit down kind of thing. So we put that on because we really wanted to do something that meant we wanted to play. You know, I played a bunch of gigs in Ibiza, which was pretty amazing. And that's been a massive part of my musical life. I probably went there every year from about Oh two to probably about 2015. Um, so I think looking back, I had like, you know, I'm I'm proud of that. And I've got some amazing memories from that time. But I think what was interesting was back, back around the early two, 2010s, maybe, I kind of got a bit disillusioned with it. My night had stopped. I was I was going to, um, I was going to kind of jack, jack DJing in, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my oldest friends, Tom, Tom Jenkins, uh, Tom Reel, um, for some of the London crew that might, might remember him, um, he was sort of playing these bar gigs, but it wasn't like serious music. It was just playing whatever they liked, mm-hmm. bangers. And that's where the name came from. Mm-hmm. We originally called the night bangers, but I think he got contacted by a guy from the States who wanted to sue him for using his name because he was like DJ bangers or something. <laughs> um, so Son of, it, we, Son of Bangers was born because we were like, we can't be bangers, so we'll try again call and call it Son of Bangers. And we had a friend, Dave Minns, who was starting a radio station up at Meat Mission, this sort of burger restaurant in London. And we went to play a one-off set at the opening day just for a laugh. And then, you know, we played there. We ended up playing uh, at one point, I think, weekly for the first year, but monthly for the next four. So that kind of reignited a lot of my love for for DJing because I think all of a sudden when I wasn't having to think, oh, I've got to have the most upfront house records and I'm playing this warm-up set with this DJ afterwards. We literally played anything we liked. We played drum and bass followed by like a hip-hop record followed by, I'm trying to think one of the worst things I played on there. I definitely played Peter Andre on that show once. I'm, I'm pretty sure I played, uh, I mean, lots of like really like pop music um, because my, 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 
my music kind of experience is everything you know i'm massively into like uh guitar music you know radiohead mm-hmm. you know it's one of my favorite bands like but i also love like hot chipping the chemical brothers prince bowie lcd sound system all this kind of wide stuff mm-hmm. and you know and and so it was really nice to sort of do that and you know the the irony being that once we were playing a son of bangers i played glastonbury twice played lost village played secret garden which was hilarious we played in a tent about the size of my my daughter's room here to about six people playing an old school drum and bass set. It was just, it was just really fun. And I didn't own any drum and bass either. So we just, we just winged it. Um, so it was really, it's really nice to kind of think that I never thought I'd still be DJing or doing anything like this in my in my mid forties, you know, I'm not going to, not, not going to pretend I'm not that age. And I was 46 this uh, last month. And, um, so it's been like a really, it's been a really, really fun 20, 25 years. And it just makes me realize how big and important part of music is to me because 95% of my friends, um, you know, were, uh, I've come through music. I've met them in clubs. I've met them at festivals. I've met them at, when they've, you know, f- friends of friends that have come to gigs. I've then gone to their nights. And it's just, there, there, there was always that cliche of like, oh, you never, you're never going to make friends in clubs. Mm-hmm. 95% of my friends are from there. Um, so music's just like a massive, massive part of my life. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a lot of DJs now, both on the podcast and out of it. And there is certain like markers or milestones that I think do like punctuate almost every DJ's journey. This whole, you know, you, you start, you get like a, a level of early success, but then you often, you can find that you might get a bit disillusioned with this whole, like, more of like what I'd say maybe like the corporate side of, you know, playing the big rooms with the right names. And then you mm. sort of go through this period where you're a bit like, mm, do I pack this in? And then you get like this epiphany moment where, you know, as you said there, you realize that, you know, I'm just going to play what I want to play. And then you sort of open up as a DJ. And then that's when you seem to have like the most fun you've ever had. And I, I feel like I went through like a miniature journey like that, but I mean, I'm only 30, so I'm probably not even, you know, you know, you never, you never, you never know where you are in any journey until you look back, and even then, it's not over, is it? So, it's just interesting that what you've said, I've seen other people mention, and it's it's up and down. Um, before you yeah, I, th- I think with DJing as well. I mean, unless you, unless it becomes clear that you're going to be doing it as a career, and I know plenty of people that do. Um, I think you kind of accept it for what it is. And I think uh, you you spend a long while trying chasing those like names or, you know, obsessing about how many pre-order tickets you've got and how many people's like your Instagram post. And I mean, I guess I, I promoted originally when a lot of that stuff wasn't as much around and I'm actually quite glad of that. But I think it definitely, ultimately, I think if you're not enjoying it, you need to work out what you enjoy doing yeah. about it. And then that, that was, as I said, a, a bit of an epiphany for me. I think it was really great. You know, I was never going to be um, a professional DJ, much as I probably spent my twenties hoping I would be. Um, and I think um, just being in a position where I've got like the Son of Bangers show, you know, doing that on Ripe with Marco. I used to do it with Tom. I've DJed a Son of Bangers with. I think he's the fifth. If we talk about like a kind of, you can go all Spinal Tap, but if you, I think he's the fifth official member. Um, up here. And again, I thought I'd, I played my last son of banger show in London. I thought that was the end of that radio show and the end of me being that kind of outfit. And then, you know, Marco, someone who ironically I DJed with in Manchester quite a few times. I think I played, I played at 
uh, Sankey's upstairs to Jeff Mills at Tribal Sessions, I think once or something like that. It was it was that was a, a really bizarre night with him. It was that was great fun. I think we, you know, it was ear splitting live techno downstairs, and I think we finished with like some disco records and all night long by Lionel Richie, and it was great. And the place was packed. And I realised that's probably something I should have thought. You know, just that was one of the most fun nights I've had in a long time. Mm-hmm. So doing it up here with him was was great. We did a bit on reform. And then, you know, we got in contact with the right guys. And again, that's a really lovely collective of people that are really kind of dovetails with what I what I feel about music, which is it's not kind of a, we're not having like cutting edge dance music nine to five, 24 seven. It's a collection of people who love music. Some of them, you know, not even kind of DJs as such as just record collectors. And and it's a, it ends up with a really nice selection of people, a great um, kind of list and different genres of shows and different offerings. And again, a bit like with the with the podcast guys, I can't wait to finally meet those, you know, Charlie and Will, when all, all of this kind of, we get out the other side, because it's about, all, music is so much about community for me. And that mm-hmm. that's gets to the heart of why, uh, why I'm still sort of in love with it this, uh, all this time after. Mm-hmm. Amazing. One thing I wanted to ask you as well, based on your previous answer, you said you've been for, to Ibiza from what, 02 to 015 every year. Hmm. Has the island changed? This is this is me just wanting to know now. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, and I'm not, I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh yeah, yeah back in the day. Because I know plenty of people have been going since the 90s and they moaned that, you know, yeah. it was rubbish after 98. I first went in 2000 um, and then started going regularly after that because the uh, website, called uh, a fortune now defunct called fourclubbers.net. I used to write for them. I was in Leeds every weekend from London and Manchester a bit, made tons of friends from there. And and I went out and played some bar gigs and stuff. And we all went out. I think at one point we had a few years where like 50 of us went out, which was crazy. Um, and it's definitely changed, but I don't think it's as changed as much as people think. Um, it really depends what your what your experience of Ibiza is. If it's just San Ana or Ibiza town or Plyde in Bossa out there for a week, going to a club every night, uh, you know, pass down the beach till you know, 6 PM, get up, dust yourself down and go out again, then it's probably going to change. Cause obviously dance music's changed. The clubs have changed, you know, space has become high and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, which wires turned up, but the Island's really pretty unchanged. If you get out and about a bit more, the magic is like, there's kind of a bit of magic everywhere. Um, for sure, when you look at the way, you know, my, when I first went to space in 2000, uh, 2002, you know, in the, ter- the old terrace when it was still open air, and then you look back now and high is in its place. Of course, you look at those two things next to each other and think, you know, what's happened? Mm-hmm. But commercialization of music and the dance music industry is, is, is something that's way outside of Ibiza. And I think even when I last went there in, oh, I think 2017, um, of course it's changed. Um, you know, the guy I used to do Son of Bangers with, he's one of the marketing directors at High. Like he, he he lives out there now. And he's seen it change even longer than I have. But but the change is really more a reflection of the music industry and the taste of music and the way DJing and dance music culture is going. It's not really a change of the island. Uh, you know, yes, it's more expensive. Yes, it's a bit more commercialized. But when something breaks into the mainstream like dance music does anyway, it will always be the case. But then you compare it to a lot of the kind of things like the sort of EDM and Vegas scenes and some of the kind of whole table service service stuff in clubs now, it still retains a lot of that magic. Okay, it's not got that rawness of somewhere like Croatia, where obviously a lot of people are going now. And I've, you know, I'm lucky enough to have gone to a bunch of festivals there as well. 
like you know electric elephant and i played at one called airbound back in the in the early 2000 in the late 2000s but if you love a beef for what it is actually the spirit of it is still there um change is inevitable and i think um in anything i think that's probably the reason behind a lot of um the change on the island less so you know the, the island selling out and it being shit uh being it being you know rubbish anymore yeah yeah, maybe I'm about just to retcon slightly the question I asked. I don't think change is necessarily a bad thing. I just wanted to get your opinion. I'm not some sort yeah, of... Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more question I wanted to ask you before we like sort of dive into the meat of the show and start talking about albums. Uh, and it's a bit of a quick fire, you know, but what mm. are your top three albums of all time and why? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was, it was funny. You ping, this, you ping this over and I just thought like it just could be change every any day of the week but i'll tell you what my three are right now mm -hmm. um lcd sound system sound of silver i mean like they're a massive band that kind of crossed over from my love of guitars and love of indie music onto the dance floor you know we all know james murphy's history and the work he's done on from djing wise but that was that's one of the reasons the blog was formed you know their follow-up album this is you know this is happening was you know what we nicked kind of nicked the, the podcast title uh, and blog title off mm -hmm. But I, I've been obsessed with them pretty much since they first came around. I've seen them at Glastonbury, Alexandra Palace, All Points East. I think they just, you know, All, All My Friends was the last song I played on my show in London. And it was the last song at my wedding, mm -hmm. uh, on, on the wedding disco. They they just are a band that, you know, are similar-ish age to a lot of them. I think they have that really good idea of like, they they there's so many influences they have that I love, but also their music isn't just about the dance floor. It's about having fun, but it's also about kind of, growing old, you look at losing my edge. I mean, you know, I laughed at that when I first heard it, when it came out. And now I'm, I'm slightly scared of like reading the lyrics because it's, <laughs> because I've definitely lost my edge. So, you know, that's definitely one of them. And, you know, I'm a big hot chip fan and Al obviously straddle, Al Doyle straddles those two bands. Um, I'll probably say OK Computer by Radiohead. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I was a big indie kid in my twenties. Um, and it was, it just feels like a bit of a lazy choice in some ways, but it's still a visionary album. It's, it's over, it, you know, it came out in 1997, I think, and it still sounds absolutely like right on the money right now. And they kind of had that. And as someone in my twenties, you know, they captured that, that melancholy and dislocation from the world probably chime with me as a miserable, miserable post-university uh, 20 something. But, you know, I, again, I've loved that band ever since, um, ever since Pablo Honey and and I think they're they're just an incredible band. And I'd probably also say uh David Bowie, Black Star. Um I was a big Bowie fan growing up. Um like like a lot of people I maybe drifted away from him in the nineties and two thousands as his kind of output went, you know, the drum and bass years and all of that, Tim Machine. Um but I think Black Star um is is one of the most incredible albums ever written because he came back with the next day and that right at the end of what we didn't know was the end of his career. And he made that album knowing he was about to die. Mm. And it's an album about death and life and love and looking back on an incredible career. And yeah, it got me back into his back catalogue, but an artist that was considered a bit past it coming out and showing that right at the end, he could make incredible music. And it, you know, it, that album chokes me up. It's, it's an incredible work of art. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, there are three, obviously really good, really good um, choices. I think with Radiohead as well, just to zone in on, on, on OK Computer, I mean, when it comes, for me personally, when it comes to Radiohead, the, the, there's four or five that could take that slot. Yeah. Uh, I think personally, like Amnesiac is one of my favourite albums of all time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
Kid A as well. But then again, before you know it, you just start listing them. Kid A. Um, yeah. I mean, In yeah. Rainbows is like, warm, like depending what day of the week it is, if I'm feeling a bit more, bit softer, like In Rainbows is to me on a par with OK Computer. It's just, mm-hmm. I think what's amazing about them is that, again, you know, like, hey, it's a straight white middle class, middle-aged guy, white, like, in a, like in Radiohead is not much of a stretch, but yeah. <laughs> they they are experimental. They did, like, they they you know, they made, they made the Benz and that was a stadium rock, indie stadium rock album. And then they made OK Computer, which was about all sorts of like awful stuff. And then, then they go and make Kid A and Amnesiac almost willfully trying to rid themselves of all the people that just wanted them to play creep and sing high and dry. It, it's, it's amazing. Like the stuff they did in that was so ahead of its time. And they, and, and as you probably would agree, like Kid A and Amnesiac still sound so modern mm. and they're 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I am slightly ashamed to admit this, um, but I cannot remember the last time I actually bought an album. It's a crime, I know, but also I'm probably a pretty good case study for the change in buying habits, you know, away from LPs and towards, certainly for me, buying individual tracks. I think for a lot of the general public, just subscribing to a streaming service. You know, why do you feel the album isn't really seeing any love nowadays? Or have I completely misread the landscape and there is a, you know, a burning passion for people to listen to albums? I mean, you've not misread it. You've not misread it. Um, You know, much as it pains me to say it, the album as an entity is, is declining. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. You could say that it's inevitable that a format that was the only way you really consume music for the best part of 30 or 40 years um, alongside, you know, the single and the EP, but the way that you, if you wanted to know what an artist is about, you bought an album, you know, and that was the main way that, that, that music was made. Um, of course you can't, if you then proliferate the formats and, and ways you consume it, of course it's going to get fragmented, but it is inevitable that, um, that physical sales and, and the, and the concept of the album is, un, is under threat and it's declining. And obviously as a, someone who, you know, for the vast majority of my, my music, even as a DJ, the vast majority of my music that I love are albums. That that makes me sad, but we all know why it's happening. You know, only a quarter of music sales are now physical in the UK. Um, you know, we look at, you look at even the 90s. So, so even let's even look pre-Facebook. Okay, so in the start of the 2000s, you had Napster and the whole like free downloading. Like the, 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 the big majors, obviously, that frightened the hell out of them. And they, um, you know, they took naps to court and all the rest of it, but that genie was out of the bottle. So immediately you're suddenly got people who will share music for free, irrespective of whether many other people are buying it. And then you fast forward through social media and you're looking at, you know, in my youth, in my teens and twenties, there was no social media. CDs had only just really got into the mainstream. We were still using cassettes. There was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. The, the means by which you consume music and search stuff out was really, really small. Like I remember, distinctly remember going to a record shop in Sheffield in Broom Hill um, when albums that I really wanted came out and I was there at eight o'clock on a Monday morning waiting for the door to open to buy the album. You don't need to do that now. You just turn your phone on. Um, and I think that ubiquity of music has definitely meant that um, that kind of event of the album and and uh, it's definitely diluted. But then you also look at, you know, um, the way we consume culture now, the, the the methods that you've got, you've got Netflix, you've got Spotify, you've got YouTube, you've got file sharing, TikTok, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, 
everything is so geared towards kind of the instantaneous gratification. I want something now. I want to look at it. I can't believe I've got to wait three minutes to find this record on YouTube, but then I'm probably just going to skip through it and tick off again. It it all points towards, you know, society is, is becoming a more kind of instantly gratified place. And, and, I, and I, that may be good and that may be bad, but I think that the sort of distractions of the TV's on, I'm looking on my phone, the music's on in the background, it's so less predisposed to I'm going to sit and listen to something for 60 minutes and I'm not going to look at the TV. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to do anything. So I think it's inevitable um, that that's the way it's going to happen. You know, streaming services now account for around 80% of music consumption in the UK. That terrifies me because, you know, we can probably, I'm sure we'll get onto it, but the streaming model is a disaster for Mm-hmm. all but the major labels and the streaming services themselves. So I think if you're talking about the album, the kind of, I think the death of the album would be on, would they, you know, they talk about the death of the album a lot. And you know, I think the death of the CDs happened, but mm-hmm. I think there's a, still a big space for albums, but I think it's inevitable the way that we consume anything has changed so much that, uh, you know, as a human beings, we're less predisposed to listening f- to something undisturbed for that long length of time. And I think that's a real shame. Because to me, the best work that music is and the best artists, the best way to discover an artist and the best way to really understand them is to listen to an album. Maybe on the flip side of this, you could say that, you know, the rise of the internet and this democratization helps more grassroots artists who don't want to go through the avenues of like a big label. Yeah, I mean, it really is interesting because it's, it's a real, there's a real positive and negative effect of it. Like, as you say, like, it's used to be negative about, oh, the album is, you know, struggling and music is doomed and all the rest of it. That's not, not the case, actually. I've never, I've never known, even lock, even in lockdown, I've never known such a rich and diverse selection of music coming out and, and such creativity, you know, and I think much the same as um, soft synths and Ableton and, you know, music software meant that you could just produce music anyway. You know, I, I, I the first, first of very few <laughs> tracks that I ever got signed was a guy looking at my MySpace. Remember MySpace? Um, yeah. Was looking at my, looking at MySpace like some guy was like, "Oh, I quite like this track. I, you know, can I sign it?" Which is, as you say, bypasses all those traditional like gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely agree that the democratization of that, as you said, is it means that people can make that music and get it out there and get access to audiences and sales, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would completely support that view. I guess the flip side that you have, the problem you have with it is that um, if the vast majority of the money is still with the majors, yeah. then all they're really getting is exposure for no, um, for no um, uh, uh, financial gain. Like I think it's a lot harder then. And I think what, I think, you know, we'll probably come to it at some point as well, but I think the struggle I have with it is my worry is that, so much of the great music that I listened to was out of the working classes in this country mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Uh, whether you're talking about black music, whether you're talking about sort of disco, like soul music, disco, or you're talking about things like, um, you know, real working class bands like the Smiths or uh, the Stone Roses. Like, as music gets more democratized and the the level entry level of cost comes down, but the entry, but the but the gain of like financial gain from it also falls. Mm-hmm. The worry is that we're left with a much smaller demographic of people that are making it, and we can all joke about like, oh, you know, who wants to listen to like Mumford and Sons or like, um, you know, uh, Lewis Capaldi and stuff like that. Uh, that may not be my bag, but the worry is you're going to get a much kind of more homogenized 
um, set of artists at the top of it. And you look at people like um, Adele, who has, you know, has, has sold staggering amounts of music and she's a working class artist. So I, I have a lot of time for her. But I think the problem we have as much as anything is that all that money and all that um, interest in PR and marketing is concentrated so much at a small top, top of the pyramid mm -hmm. that if you don't take care of the bits that are lower down, then the whole thing falls to bits. And I think my real worry about, for, I promise I won't say it again, but the real worry about the COVID situation and lockdown and, and the threat it has to venues is that if you remove all those lower level venues and they all just get turned into flats, where do people make their, where do people cut their teeth? Where do people mm -hmm. learn to make good music? Where do people learn to perform? And if you're, you know, if people are out of work because they've got no ability to, to, to get a job because of what's happened and they're, you know, you look at artists in the eighties, how many of them was in the seventies, how many of them freely admit that they were signed on? Mm. You won't be able to do that. You can't make a music career and sign on the dole anymore. So it, it worries that, that this whole kind of backdrop to music, like you're absolutely right. The plus side is democratization of music. Like the entry point is so low, everyone can make it. Mm -hmm. But the worry is that who's making a career and making a, making a success out of it. And you worry that the, it's the people at the top of the pyramid who are totally invested in a streaming culture that makes only them money. Um, you know, you worry that how long can that persist before, you know, at some one, at some point, one level of that music pyramids just falls away. Mm -hmm. And I know one, no one wants to see that. I don't care. Like my way into taking DJ as an example, right? Yeah. I'd like to think I, I buy some cool records and I play some cool records and I used to, but when I started out, I was going to HMV and buying like most of the top 10 dance chart on vinyl. And it was some, I mean, I don't own most of those records anymore. So, you know, you look at that and you think, well, everyone has a gateway into this, so you can't be snobbish about it. But if you remove levels of that kind of strata of that sort of dance uh, of the music kind of ecosystem, how long, how much can it survive as it is? And mm -hmm. I, I just worry about that um, because it feels like the the conversation about the album and the, uh, the sort of threat to how we can see music is all part of that conversation. And it's hard. I'm an optimist, but it's hard not to feel a bit depressed about it sometimes. I think one thing I should mention here as well is uh, the previous question I just asked you, I linked the, this democratization of music with the death of the album, which ne isn't necessarily the case. Um, mm. It's just one angle. I mean, there's nothing stopping a, you know, a grassroots band releasing an album and putting it on Spotify and streaming. Like, uh, yeah, maybe that link is something that we've invented as well. Um, obviously, it's probably happening in a lot of cases, but I don't want to say it's always the case because there's nothing stopping. Just, just, just because we're in the age of Spotify doesn't mean you can't release an album if you want on on, on digitally. No, not at all. But I think the problem you have. So there's a. I don't know if you've followed the broken record movement. This guy called Tom Gray who used to be in Gomez actually, or unless might still be in Gomez. They've had a big push, and they're actually they had a Department of Culture, Media, and Sport hearing in Parliament recently, um, where they actually gave evidence about the streamer model. And you look at the examples of some really successful artists. So the one that's in the news is Nadine Shah. Mm -hmm. You know, she was Mercury nominated. She had um, top 10 album sales. And once you removed um, gigging because of COVID, she's like, I had to move in with my parents. I can't actually make any money off streaming. It's not enough. You know, I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's something like 100,000 streams equivalent of what is, is equivalent of one album sale, physical album sale, which is insane. So something there isn't right. And I think, 
we don't know what the answer is going to be and the endpoint's going to be at the moment. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't think it's wrong to link that and, and maybe declining album sales because it all it's all part of the set. It's two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I want to move the conversation on now a bit to talking a bit about like the power of um, the album. Uh, and we can say that, take that in whatever way you want, the power mm. of the album. Um but, you know, what, in your opinion, does an album that an artist or band do that a collection of singles doesn't? Uh, essentially, I'm asking, like, what, what's the benefits for a recording artist to, to releasing an album? I mean, I think, um, to me, it's about narrative. Um, you know, I think, without a doubt, the single, the single is a really huge thing. You know, singles break bands. When we talk about electronic music, actually, it's probably one genre where the majority of artists don't often release albums um or or it's not the centerpiece of what they do but outside maybe electronic music um it's to me it's like it's it's essential like i think if you want to learn about what an artist is to me to me if you can do singles and you can't do an album then you're not most of the time it doesn't feel like you're someone that is really got your craft honed down um and that might sound like a bit of an old an old guy response but to me it's something that's more than the sum of its parts you know how can you really how much can you really you know if you so i love prince if i'd only knew his singles how i undoubtedly would have thought i knew him as an artist but but actually didn't and I, and similar you know take someone like bowie for instance you might know everyone knows the greatest hits but actually some of my favorite bowie tracks are you know album tracks off low or or young americans or or black star and stuff like that i think you're missing out if you, if if you've got a great album you're missing out if you only listen to the singles i mean look at your look at your favorite albums that great albums to me is something you makes you want to listen from start to finish that joy of like i know i, I know i love an album where when i'm listening to something as i start to get into the end end of one of the songs i already am getting excited because i know the next one's coming in or you know i i know that um you know, I know that there's a particular part of the album or a particular track that's going to work together. That that kind of joy of things working together, to me, I think it's it's about, it's not just a collection of songs. Great albums take you on a journey. They, they program music together in a way that makes you feel something. Um, and I think... You know, you could look at, you could, I look at any sort of, any sort of different number of albums there. Um, but it, it, it's hard, it's really hard to make a really good album. It's easy to make a load of songs and stick them out on an eight track, you know, release, but it's really hard to make it work as a coherent thing. Why can't we just do that then? I've got, I was going why can't I just throw my 10 singles together? You know, I think you've touched on it there already. And it's this idea of narrative. Um, um, I mean, you can't, you can't, the answer is you can. Easily. Yeah, do you think you'd be able to tell straight off if someone's done that? By the fact that if this band's been going for four years and you know all the singles and it is just the greatest hits album, but um, um, what tonally do you think, let's say, let's say here's a good like thought experiment. I played you, it's a very difficult thought experiment actually. I played you uh, an album. Do you think you'd be able to know if you've never heard the band before or any of the tracks, whether it was a collection of singles or an actual album? Or it could just be a shit. It could be a shit album. To be fair, yeah. it's not a great I mean, experiment. But let's roll. No, with I, it. I know. I know what you mean. I mean, I think it's. Um, I think if it's a new artist, it's it's you got. I guess you got to have a bit of context. But then I guess you can listen to an, an album of someone you've never heard before, and it just blow you away. Mm-hmm. I think if you like albums and you like music and you like the long form of release, 
you'll know having listened to an album once or twice whether you think it's a decent album you might then the classic example of the spotify generation like you might listen i'm sure what happens a lot now is people listen to albums and they kind of and they're like well i like that one i don't like that one i like this one i'm going to stick that in my spring 2021 playlist and those three go in and i can forget about them um i it also needs an investment in time i think i think yes you could just throw 10 singles together and they could be instantly accessible but some of the albums that i absolutely love now i I wasn't that fussed with at the start um take a recent one like caribou suddenly i'm a massive caribou fan um i loved um swim and and i think those albums have got obvious kind of bangers in them you look at um you know um odessa or you look at in in suddenly you know um you know they've got two or three um, real standout tracks but actually when you listen to it a lot more you realize there's so much richness in all of them and then you you end up in this place where i don't really want to listen to it apart from end to end so i think it's it's probably easy to 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 say you can pull out the pull out the albums where you just don't think there's been a lot of great programming and a lot of a lot of good sequencing on it mm-hmm. um but also i think um going back to that theme we talked about before where i think um everything's kind of quite instant now and people want to be able to jump around. Everyone's very magpie-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone listens to everything. You have to invest time in it. I don't think it's possible to really know if you love an album or not before you've listened to it four or five times. And I think for the podcast, what's interesting about that is we often have an album that's out. We'll get, we'll have it between two and four weeks. Then we do a record. Mm-hmm. We'll have written something on the blog about it. And in the time that all those things have sequenced and happen. We've often, by the time we've recorded, and especially by the time the episode comes out, one of us has already changed our minds, mm-hmm. either for, for the positive or the negative, because, you know, sometimes it just takes a while for that to really work. Mm. I like what you said there as well. You know, you mentioned it a few times in the answer about the investment in time, and you need, you need to listen yeah. to it three or four times before you decide whether you like it or not. Um, so I suppose a question I've just thought about here is like, should albums be tough then? in a sense that should some of the tracks be hard to listen to, do you, would you find yourself actively thinking, oh, I've got, I don't like this track and this album, but as part of the tapestry that makes it a whole, I can listen through it because it goes through that narrative. There's a certain like maybe cathartic joy in being like, okay, this is, this is the weak one in the album, but listen yeah, yeah. to it. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, we actually talked about this on the last episode because we, re- we, we, interviewed, uh, we reviewed Paul McCartney of all people's album McCartney 3. Um, and two of us, David and I, were really big Beatles fans and the other guys less so. And I think we argued about it quite a bit. But even on that, there was one track that none of us particularly liked. And I think in the days of like vinyl and even a cassette, you just kind of listen to the shit track, as you call it. You'd be kind of like, oh, here's a shit track. I'll think of something else or go and you know go to the toilet or whatever um but even then you kind of you accept it as part of the whole i think in the kind of you know playlist generation you just skip through it um i think investment in time some albums should be tough some albums should be instantly brilliant like look at i'm a huge rasheen murphy fan look at um rasheen machine and yes that was a interestingly that was fits in with one of your questions that was a collection of a lot of singles actually from the last three I think some of them are three or four years old but interestingly she uh, her and DJ Parrot who who produced all the work together they kind of blended it in as one mix they tweaked different different versions and still the programming on the album is amazing in the sense that it's a, a dance floor album but 
you you listen to it and it works beautifully together, even though we knew most of the tracks that were on it. Um, but I think sometimes sometimes you should have to put the hours in. I think to me, some of the albums we've done on the podcast, um, I definitely won't listen to. We did one by a guy called Eve Tumor, which was really interesting. It was kind of quite noisy, industrial, quite modern kind of scuzzy soul. And it was interesting. I've not listened to it since we did the podcast. And, and it's not the case that you should keep listening to albums because they're albums. But um, I think some things are much more than the sum of that. Like one of the best albums from last year was Salt, um, Untitled Black Is. And that is an amazing collection of music with a message that is much bigger than that album, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, all about kind of racism and oppression that you listen to. And it, 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 gets, it gets you emotionally as well as musically. And that is you know, that is something that transcends the music on that particular album. There's oh. definitely things that you would never get that off listening to just Wildfires, which was the big radio single. You wouldn't listen to that one record and think, you know, I, I, I now have an understanding of some of the pain of what these people are living at, you know, live their lived experience in 2020. But you, God, my God, you listen to that album and it's, it's brutal at times. And you wouldn't get that from a collection of singles or an EP or just listening to the hits. Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting actually yeah if you you know you can pull out any number of singles from an album and you know as a standalone it could be it could be a banger in the middle of an album that's actually quite a a somber contemplative uh you know um experience i suppose would be the best yeah. word for it so yeah, it's interesting the way that yeah that that can happen well, it, well it's con it's context as well isn't it because you might you could pull a song out of say the salt album um i'm trying to think of one of the ones off the top of my head so you might listen to like wildfires or don't shoot guns down these like really or or bow and these really kind of big sort of obviously great kind of accessible ones and then you listen to other one if you listen to it on its own on the radio you just think i'm not sure about that but you listen to it in the context of the album and it's got, it's a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it feeds into that kind of narrative, that context about, you know, taking, taking things to one, to, to, to a particular place where it's more than just about the 10 tracks that you've put one after another. Mm -hmm. So we've spoken about narrative quite a lot and about how albums can build narratives uh, and elicit emotions. But also, I think, you know, like a really good DJ mix can elicit emotions and a really good DJ mix should tell a narrative, no matter where you are, where you're playing. So there are parallels there between a good mix and a good album. But where do you see the album being different? What can an album draw out certain things in you that a mix, no matter how good, never can? And obviously, the obvious difference is an album's one artist and all their songs and mixes somebody playing loads, maybe their own stuff, but a lot of other stuff. So yeah, I suppose like what, in your opinion, could an album do potentially as like a narrative that maybe like a mix never could? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of commonality and, and some, some obvious differences without a doubt. Some of the most incredible alive of music experiences I've had have been on dance floors where you've just got taken on this journey. I mean, Andrew, I could evangelize an entire episode about Andrew Weatherall DJing, but I saw him and Harvey at Trow in, um Amsterdam dance event maybe seven or eight years ago and they played like six hours and it went from disco to dub to breakbeat to house and you know oh god I'd, I'd love to see the track list of that thing I think what I what I would say is one thing an album can't really do is what dance music definitely can do is is have that the incredible experience in the moment where you may only ever get 
that track following the previous track, where you are with that crowd, with those people in that venue. I think that's where dance music and electronic music and DJing transcends what the album can sometimes do. Because I think it's really easy. I think in the traditional music press, it's always been easy for people to kind of dismiss DJs and DJ mixes. I think it's actually why quite a lot of, there's, there's quite a lot less of great dance albums because so much of it is about the live experience or the moment of being in a DJ set. And, and when it, when they're at their top of their game, DJs can do things that music artists making an album can never do. They can have that inventiveness to splice stuff together in a way that is, is essentially a one-off. That's what's fascinating about it. And I think that's what an album can't give you. But what an album gives you, I think, is you've got that, just as a DJ has total creative control over what sounds, what music they're going to play in what order. And it, there's almost that kind of brilliant spontaneity about it. Um, an album isn't spontaneous in the sense that it's finely crafted and built into a particular thing in a particular order. But but the But what you get out of an album that you probably could never get from a DJ set is that repeatability of just that familiarity, that experience that you can go back to again and again and again. Okay. You can listen to a live, a live DJ set again and again. And I, there's, there's a handful that I probably still listen to because I know them so well, but I think that's maybe the difference you get between the two. The beauty of dance music is that spontaneous off the cuff experience that you only really have if you're in that moment there, but on, you know, conversely, you won't get that from an album, but the album gives you that ability to enjoy that experience again and again and again, irrespective of where you are or who you're with. And I think they're two incredible, like complementary things that don't necessarily cross over that much. But I, I think you can't denigrate one. I think they 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 own they stand in their own space. Yeah, I wasn't trying to draw battle lines here or anything. No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, would, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to get the whole like, you know, Noel Gallagher, you shouldn't get hip hop at Gastonby or, you can, yeah. you know, all that kind of nonsense. Um, no, I'm I'm friends for all genres and all and all delivery methods, don't worry. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I wanted to, obviously, we spoke about, you know, like maybe some of like, the more pessimistic sides of like, is the album dying? You know, are people moving away from this sort of long form musical content. But I did want to ask as well, uh, you know, which artists in your opinion are really booking this trend, you know, releasing great timeless and influential albums. You know, I'm sure you could probably just list everyone who's been on your podcast. <laughs> uh, and that's probably a great start, but you know, in your opinion, like who, who is doing that and um, why do you think they're so influential? I mean, in the last, in the last, obviously touching on some of the ones in the podcast in the last like six to eight months and we've done it, Undoubtedly, but the first one we did was Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels 4. I mean, that album, I'm not as much of a hip hop head as the other guys, like God, Nolan and David and Joey are like super deep hip hop heads. But that album landed just at lockdown and it kind of was really talking about like kind of the end of the world in some aspects, as well as kind of the, str- the you know, the, the struggle. Um, and that was, you know, hip hip hop albums, I can't think of many that have a narrative like that apart from maybe something like Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, you talk about a concept hip-hop album, there's not many of them. Mm. But they're, t- they're great. I mean, we touched on Salt. I mean, amazing thing about Salt is no one even knows who they are, you know. Um, but they, they, they imagine releasing not one but two albums that make it into your top 10 of the year, which they did with me. Um, Caribou, again, we talked about. I think he's an artist that is such a kind of crate digger and lover of like vinyl and these odd samples and stuff. You know, there's a, there's a great podcast called Song Exploder where he talks about um, uh, when, making one of his tracks for, for the latest album. And, he, and he, he, he tried to make it, he tried to get it right for a year and went through like hundreds of samples. I mean, it's insane how much effort goes into that. 
Um, and yeah, I think there's some other, like, uh, you know, I think you talk about dance music. It's it when you get an album that stands out, that has real like human sort of warmth and heart and um, like character to it. I thought Kelly Lee Owen's album um, in a song last year was one of those, you know, we just done the bicep album you can really interestingly chart all their influences back to some of my favorite dance music artists of the nineties, you know, Orbital Underworld, Chemical Brothers, Left Field, that kind of stadium attempt at like unashamedly making dance music for big rooms. Bicep, I think, you know, Isles is beautifully programmed. You know, that's not just a selection of bangers. I mean, there's, there's so many ones that I think, you know, if I'm, if I was being asked, you know, from the last 10 years, you know, what are albums, what are, what are albums that I'd what make people listen to that are, an example of why you should listen to an album, you know, Michael Kiwanuka stuff. I absolutely love Rasheen Murphy's albums, her, her, you know, take her up to Monto and um, hairless toys were these like avant-garde pop albums, like wrapped up in people thinking, Oh, there's the bird from Maloko. I mean, she's so much more than that. Uh, Christine and the Queen stuff, like that kind of gender fluid kind of, you know, she's playing a, a character of a, of a guy in the, in, you know, in the, the last album. And it's, but it's got a real like nineties R and B feel. Um, I'm a massive hot chip fan. I think they do, they do like electronic music that is incredibly emotional. You listen to their music and it's like, oh, that's a real one for the dance floor. And then you actually, you know, you read the lyrics and it's about like, you know, loneliness and and you know, um and and depression on some of these tracks. So yeah, James Blake is another guy that's incredibly creative that while he has these really great dance floor tracks, his albums do something completely different. So I think there's I could go on for like a week on how many like great albums and great um, um, artists that buck that trend. I think without a doubt, there's some incredible music, especially from the dance arena coming out. And there's some incredible singles. I, I, I like music from people that I don't really have their albums, but a lot of those artists, Kevin Morby is another one. Again, someone who isn't really a singles artist is almost kind of, he's an American guy who almost makes this kind of like, dare I say it kind of country influenced Americana that is so far from what I'm into yet it's just this beautiful beautiful music and I think the album has that ability to kind of unfurl in front of you in a way that you might dip in and out of a three-minute single and just go I'm, I'm not really bothered by that. Uh, another question I've got just which has come off the back of the, some of the artists you've listed now again if you look at this sort of um, you know it's probably this constructed generational divide we have between the album generation and the, the streaming generation, you know, where, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, like the album was king, the album was the mainstream. Do you mm. think we could be entering a, a, a time now where, you know, if you love an album, you're actually part of a niche underground. And, <laughs> and you know, you're known as, a, you know, you're somebody who like, I, you know, I like to explore all facets of this artist. And that's sort of what, you know, you look at the nineties, you know, you're buying 12 inch, you know, dance EPs. And that was, mm. you know, that's not the norm. Now the norm is, you know, streaming tracks you like for three minutes, creating your own playlist. And actually if you spend the time and effort to consume an album, that's sort of like a bit of, again, air quotes, avant-garde. Yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, it's, it's an interesting way of, way of putting it actually. I mean, obviously I really hope that listening to albums doesn't become the underground, but I think there's not, you know, you can't kind of just like mug that mug that sort of um, proposition off as much as I'd want to, because I think, you know, we talked about investing time and like the experience of, you know, I almost kind of want to get 
people and go like, just listen to albums. It will change your life. And I think maybe they will become a bit of the new underground. I mean, it's interesting that there's a vinyl, a bit of a vinyl revival. I mean, it's a bit overdone. They always say like, oh, vinyl sales are increasing. I mean, they're increasing from like one to 1.5% of the market. But it's interesting to see that that is happening. And that's happening not at just people my age, but it's happening at people, you know, kid, the kids are getting into vinyl and there's a kind of a collectible thing to it. I mean, yeah, if the album, hey, if, it, if it's a difference between albums just dying out as an art and becoming the underground, I'm all for the albums becoming the new underground. I definitely think there is always going to be a section of people who will kind of have that um, real love for that sort of different for that form of music. And I think, um, you know, I really hope that continues, but I think no one can really predict it. I, I would love to say that the album will have a revival, but I just don't think the numbers suggest that that's going to be the case. But if they become a new underground outside the sort of streaming, um, you know, the kind of streaming arena or even within it, then great. I think it would be heartbreaking if um, music changed to an extent that, the album didn't really exist anymore. And I don't think that's where we are, but you know, if you, if you look at the trends and how much album sales have, have declined, there's times where it's hard to be like um, super optimistic about what will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I'm quite happy with the album because I think when the album, if, if it did become like this underground, we haven't even defined what this underground even means. Oh, don't try to define it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's an internet war you don't want to get into. But no, no, I, I know what you mean. But if, I think it would give people even more creative freedom. I think you're, you're, onto your point as well, very briefly, about like um, vinyl sales. I do think vinyl has really become a collectible. Now, I've got a lot of friends who have bought, mm. but you can get that that 40 pound um, turntable from H, uh, HMV or wherever it is. And it's like, it looks like a little carrying case that you open and obviously it's just belt driven. But, you know, people now, I've, I've seen a lot more of my friends just wanting to have like a few records on, you know, on the shelf. I think I've actually yeah. got a busted old Vestax at my studio, which I don't use anymore, but I've got a lot of my albums there. My studio is about 600 meters away from my flat. Um, but it'd be nice to actually bring, good. bring oh it's really good don't I? Let's, I mean, it's sick I really love it it's really good <laughs> but bringing back all the albums I've got on the on the rack and just having them to play at home and then uh, the studio is just for shelling it um, yeah yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah it's interesting what you said about the vinyl because yeah, yeah, it's always making a comeback apparently um, well I mean it is I mean I think I think the one thing we haven't to very briefly touch on that we haven't really talked about is is for me, albums and my experience of albums is a very physical experience. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I still listen to a lot of stuff. I listen to the vast majority of my stuff digitally, and I buy a lot of stuff. I think my rule for streaming is if I listen to an album more than four or five times, I buy it, even if it's digitally. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear, for the podcast, for instance, we have only ever, since we started the blog and in the podcast, we've only ever bought physically. Every single we ha If an album isn't out physically, we can't review it. We buy it and send it to everyone else. And... A lot like, I mean, you're, you're a DJ, you know, there's that something about playing vinyl that mm -hmm. I hope that that feeling and that kind of physical, emotional connection never, never disappears because I don't quite know. I'm sure there's some psychologist that can, that can put it better than me, but there's something about holding something in your hands and physically manipulating it that you can never get from a WAV or a, you know, Serato or something. Well, Serato is probably the wrong example, but you, but you, I think there's some sort of, I guess certainly for me, there's a kind of a quite primal connection of being able to physically have something, which is why I've got boxes and boxes of CDs, why I've got 
five, 600 records sat in the room, you know, through there, because it's still really important to me. I haven't just put them all onto MP3 or WAV and then stuck them all in the loft because it's, you know, my daughter is three. She now comes in and says, I want to play music. She gets, opens the top of the turntable. She'll pull a random dance thing out, put her music on. She was dancing around to it. I mean, that makes my my heart like overflow because I just, I desperately want her to, to get the enjoyment that I have out of that music. And if at least some level of that persists, then I'll, I'll be happy. Mm. Do you know, that's quite interesting as well, because again, um, I was, well, I was 15 in what, 2005. So I got to feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah. Cause I think maybe I've had quite like a unique experience of actually buying primarily digital albums for a period. So like I was a very big, big indie kids, like the Maccabees. And when was the Foles first album? It was been like 2006. God, yeah, something like that. Um, lies. I remember seeing. I remember seeing um, LCD sound system, um, and who else? Who's that? You know that sort of like new, that new was it new? The new disco sort of like Claxons. Uh, Claxons was the one. There we go. LCD sound. New system. rave, spelled N U. Whoever coined that. New rave, not new disco. <laughs> um, but oh, yeah. you'll, piss, you'll piss a lot of Scandinavians off. You think that if you think the Claxons are new disco, but oh, yeah, <laughs> there's another internet war you're in. <laughs> but um yeah so a weird sort of it must have only lasted for maybe a few years i think i'm not sure because because i started djing at uni then i, I went straight to buying like buying digital um mm. so i never really got into the stream I, I want to own the music even if it's digital yeah it wasn't yeah, yeah. Until, wasn't until a lot later up until i think the past six or seven years no six or seven, five years i've very much been 50 50 vinyl because I, I i love playing out with vinyl but also I'm not gonna. I, I don't want to be like some sort of like avant-garde purist. Like I'll buy. I'll buy. Oh yeah. As well, and Wabs. Well, Wabs not MP3s. But yeah, it's just interesting that. Yeah, for ages I had a, just like a bumper iTunes library full of like albums. Um, quite sad that it's disappeared, but I got rid of iTunes because I really don't like it. <laughs> not a fan. Hey, now we're taking an apple. We're killing all the sacred cows. Um, <laughs> but no, I know what you mean. I mean, it's, it's really nice to hear that you have, I remember, yeah, when you were chatting to, uh, on the podcast, when you were chatting, to, uh, chatting about Eastern Block, it was really nice to hear about going in and, you know, buying records. And I don't want to get all like misty eyed and like, oh, I remember when I used to go, I did go down every Friday and spend a eye-watering amount of money on vinyl when I was in my twenties. I don't know how I afforded it to be honest, but it's really nice to see that isn't, there is a bit of that trend is getting bucked a bit. And even if it's just accepting as a mix of the two, then great. Um, Cause at the end of the day, what it comes down to is by buying something rather than streaming something, you are supporting that artist directly. And if you think streaming will support the artist and you don't need to do anything else, then you're, you are part of the problem. Um, and I'm not against streaming in its, in its existence, but it has to be only part of what we're doing. So I, you know, I always get angry with people like, Oh, look, no, no, I stream all this stuff up Spotify. And I'm like, if you bought one album, everything you listen to 10 times, you bought even a digital album of that, it's going to be more than all the streams you'll listen to for that artist in your lifetime. And that's just kind of, I think it's the, it's a conversation that needs to be had, but I think it's really nice seeing that, that it isn't just a one way, it's a, not a one way direction of travel. So that's, that's, that's lovely to hear. Amazing. Uh, and that actually brings me on really nicely to the last question of the show. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to, I, I always like to end with a bit of a big one and a bit of a, you know, what are your predictions for the future? So, you know, what are your predictions for the future of music uh, specifically 
you know, the production and release of songs and tracks by artists, you know, will we see more self-releases and promotion? Will streaming giants continue to dominate? Or will we see, um, as we just mentioned in the show, some more underground albums coming to the, you know, coming a bigger part of what people listen to? Where, you know, where are we heading? I mean, it's really hard to predict, but I think as we referred to before, I think um, the trends are clear. And I think um, on my on my dark days, it's hard not to feel pretty depressed about what that might mean for the music industry. And I'm not going to go over the points you made before, but I think that monopoly of the majors in with the streaming um, uh, providers, something has to change there because without a doubt, that is not going to support the artist on its own. And I think if, if these, you know, I've I've been around long enough to know that when the when governments talk about we're going to do a commission and we're going to talk about this and we're going to take on the labels yeah it's like you took on Google and you took on Amazon um I really want something to happen because I think if you can't even if you're not interested in politics if you can't understand that artists that were surviving financially two years ago can now have to move into their parents house because they can't make money if they're people that you buy their records off then something's wrong with that system so i think it's all about we talked about before about that kind of pyramid i really hope that um that something can change because if you love music then you should be invested in trying to make sure that those artists and those models survive i think you're absolutely right i think self-release stuff getting around those traditional gatekeepers if the labels aren't going to be there to support you by you know putting all their money in with streaming then then you've got to do something for yourself and i hope they'll be able to connect to audiences in a way that means the business model works um so i think um you know i think it's 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 hard for me to uh it's hard for me to to sometimes feel like um this government understands culture or cares about culture i think it's you know, we've looked at all the stuff going on around all the grants that have come out. Um, yeah, it, it's all very well giving millions to the Albert Hall, but how many people in Oldham or Wigan or Bristol are going to go to the Albert Hall? Yes, there's been grants for those other venues, but I think it's all part of the same thing. Either we care about that structure that supports music or not. Now, I'm an optimist by nature, so I'm not, you know, putting my optimistic hat on, I believe things can change. You know, there is such an incredible passion for music and love of that grassroots level music has given me all the best experiences in my life the best people that i've met the places i've gone the the people that i've spoken to you know i've interviewed some of my heroes it's it, it is part of what my existence is and it's part of who i am and i hope that that relationship that people have with music makes them invest that time and that energy and that money to you know to be blunt into the into the systems that help those artists survive the culture in our country is so rich, we can't let it fail, you know, despite all the pretty grim stories about, you know, problems of artists touring the EU until we get that stuff sorted out. It feels like it's hard sometimes not to feel like it's a bit under existential threat. But I think the other thing I'll say is in a culture and a time where, you know, mental health is a really big thing now, and we're talking about mindfulness and we're talking about, you know, slowing down. I can't think of a more mindful thing than focusing on, the long form, whether it's reading, whether it's watching a film over a 20 minute YouTube video, whether it's listening to an album, I like, I'd like to think that there's part of the existing generation of, um, of people that are now consuming music in their teens and twenties that as, the, as that backdrop changes who they are and what they do, maybe there's a, maybe there's a space for the album to exist as something that is kind of, uh, you know, we've had the Tim's Twitter listening parties. That is a brilliant way of bringing people together. They're sitting in a room. 
and they're simply listening to an album from start to finish. I think that's had a huge effect. And maybe there's going to be inventive ways that we can make sure that that music survives in the way that we want it to. I mean, no one knows what the future is going to hold, but you know, to me, there's there's a place for it, and I hope that and I hope that you know continues long after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's a nice point to end on as well. Um, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Not at all. It's, it's been, been an absolute really pleasure. Cool conversation. Uh, and I hope the rest of your day goes really well. Um, no worries. And if anyone's listening or watching, I always forget to do this. Listening or watching, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yeah, yeah. Hit, hit that like and subscribe. Yeah, don't hear yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Definitely. Yeah, look, guy, it was really great to chat to you today, and hopefully, um, the re- one, the rest of your Valentine's Day goes really well. Oh, yeah. And yeah. two, whenever we can meet up again in in real life, I really hope we can catch up in person. I would love to. It would be. I'm very much looking forward to having a beer somewhere. Hopefully, with um, very loud music going on in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd take social distancing right now just to go and meet some friends. But uh, Oh, me too. Me too. I can't wait for uh, us to be able to at least go out and maybe put a Bluetooth speaker in the park somewhere and at least have a chat to someone, even if we're at the other end of the bench. I mean, you could do it now, but it, it would be very, very cold. <laughs> yeah, I think the speaker might fail. Um, no, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Liam. It's really, it's really lovely to, you know, from listening to the previous episodes of the podcast, it's all a, it's lovely seeing people who are passionate about music and that wider world. And I think it's uh, it's been a pleasure to come on and and drone on about the album because oh, I could I could spend I could I could spend the uh, I'm sure there's a podcast in that, but um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, I do a podcast. Listen to listen to uh, this is not happening if you get a chance. But thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries, and we'll put a link to obviously your podcast sure. in the show notes. Uh, Likewise, I will catch you in a bit. Yeah, take care, man. See ya. Bye-bye.